Well, good evening. Take your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20. There are, making, there are many archaic laws that are still on the books in this country that don't seem very relevant to our day. So I picked a few out that I thought might be pertinent for you. For example, in the state of Alabama, there is a law, Brother Dan, that you cannot wear a false mustache that causes laughter in church. So no more of that. I didn't mean yours. The ones you had, I must ask you in the kid zone. Here in Arkansas, there is a law that you are not allowed to mispronounce Arkansas as Arkansas. That at least is understandable, at least to an Arkansan. In Connecticut, there is a law that a pickle is not a pickle unless it will bounce. Did you know that? A pickle is not a pickle unless it will bounce. So you may go home tonight, try that out, pull a pickle out, see if it will bounce. This one's especially for you, buddy. With Valentine's Day approaching... You need to understand that in Idaho, there is a law that giving your sweetheart a box of chocolates that weighs more than 50 pounds is illegal. (laughs) 49.9 pounds is okay, 50 pounds is out of question. In Maine, it is illegal to have your Christmas decorations up after January 14th. Anybody guilty? In Michigan, Rhonda, there is a law that says a woman isn't allowed to cut her hair without her husband's permission. Again, understandable. Just one more. In Memphis, Tennessee, there is a law on the books that says a woman cannot drive a car unless there is a man with a red flag in front of the car warning the other people on the road. I don't think I can walk that fast, and I don't want to tempt my wife. (laughs) Some people view the Ten Commandments as being just uh, as archaic, just as irrelevant, especially the Second Commandment, to not make idols. Of the Ten Commandments, we are sometimes like the little boy who, while studying the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, was overheard to say, well, at least I never made any graven images. When we read the list, we also, as adults, sometimes at least think, well, (laughs) at least I didn't, I'm not guilty of that one. But are you really sure? People are attempting to make God in their own image. When we hear someone say, and you will probably have heard this, I like to think of God as, fill in the blank. Do you have that privilege? (laughs) Or have you heard someone say, my God is not like that. As if you get to determine what God is like or not like. I fear that there's something missing in the worship of many Christians in America It's not often that churchgoers even contemplate 
finding themselves face to face with a living God. If there were, then no doubt we would worship differently. Unfortunately, it is all too easy to a to acquire a vast storehouse of fascinating information about God without coming face to face with him. We can know all about God theoretically without knowing him personally. An encounter with a living God shakes us awake. It arrests our attention from all the things that make up life, family problems, sales meetings, sports, and even our own self-pity. It awakens us to the greatness of the person who we are meeting. It interrupts our plans. It changes our priorities. It confronts us with God's claims on our lives. It is not something that we can turn away from and forget on our way home from church. Warren Warnsby says that we have lost all contact with who God is. He says, rather than an encounter with the living God, we are toying with an imitation of our own imagination. The second commandment addresses this desire to fashion a God of our own design. In Exodus 20, in verse 4, we read, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, that you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commands." So I want to share with you three things about this command. First of all, what it prohibits in verse number four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. It is not the worship of false gods that is condemned here. Otherwise, it would just be a repeat of the first commandment. Rather, this commandment refers to the inadequate and inaccurate image of the true God and their use in worship. It's possible to worship false gods, but it is also possible to worship the true God falsely. The first commandment forbids worship of false gods. And the second commandment forbids the false worship of the true God. The first commandment tells us whom we must worship. And the second tells us how we must worship him. Does that mean then that I cannot worship God just any way I choose? Yes, that's exactly what it means. Yet even among Christian tradition, idols have shown up. Great idol processions are still common in many parts of the third world. Such processions are called penitential processions, and they are clearly pagan. I've walked through ornate Catholic churches in Mexico, in Peru, 
in Colombia, in Costa Rica, and we find much the same. Did we get those pictures posted, by the way? Anybody get those up? I don't know. I had a couple of photos that I took inside some of those Latin American cathedrals. Uh, each of those churches contained statues, figures, images of Christ, images of the Virgin Mary, and certainly statues of various saints. A visual representation of Christ on the cross or not on the cross can easily become an object of worship and thus violate the second command. When God is reduced to an image, whether it is a crucifix or worship before a statue of the Virgin Mary or one declared to be a saint by the Pope, the problem is that this is a kind of worship that really requires no serious consideration of the life that one is living. Sometimes people argue that using religious images is simply an aid to worship because it focuses our mind. But just suppose for a moment someone said to you, I put a picture of a snake on the wall to remind me of you. Would you be flattered? No, I seriously doubted. You'd be insulted. And I believe that's how God feels when we use images in his place. Something you may not have realized is that the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church makes the second commandment a part of the first commandment, not a separate commandment. Thus excluding images only to other gods rather than images used in worshiping the Lord God. They thus complete the Ten Commandments by squeezing two commandments out of the prohibition against coveting. Israel came from their time as slaves in Egypt with a variety of images representing the gods of Egypt etched in their minds. The Israelites did not go far into the wilderness until just how big an influence that was and how big a problem it was became obvious. They were only a few weeks out of Egypt, having crossed the Red Sea by the obvious power of God, having been fed man in the wilderness and given water in the desert by God's might, they knew who had delivered them out of Egypt. Yet now they tried to reduce the God of the universe to a physical image. While Moses is still on Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments, the people have grown weary and waiting for Moses to come down off the mount. And so they turn to Aaron and they say, in, according to Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron gathers all of the gold. He melted it down and he made a statue of a calf. Then in verse 4 it says, And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they substituted the image of a golden calf for the God of the universe. But they now had a God they could control. The obvious result was, it said that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
which is a description of the sensual worship that is associated with idolatry. The golden calf incident is a narrative, a story commentary on the second, on the second commandment. Don't be confused. It wasn't that the children of Israel wanted a different God. It's just that they wanted to worship God in a different way. They would have been horrified if someone thought they meant to worship someone other than Jehovah. Israel's idol-worshiping neighbors noticed something that different about Jehovah, the God of Israel. He had no physical image. He was invisible and could not be contained in a temple are moved about by men. On one occasion, the wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, took the ark of God into a battle against the Philistines as though they were using God in the same way that the Philistines used their god, Dagon, as a lucky charm in battle. The result was that the ark was captured. Both Israel and the Philistines learned some lessons from this experience. The Philistines thought they had captured Israel's God. But what they discovered was that God had no dependence upon Israel to protect him or to cart him about. He reigns as a sovereign Lord. And thus he brought a plague upon the Philistines... So, that, so much so that they feared drawing near to the ark where God had revealed himself. The ark was not God, nor an image of God. It was not to be worshipped, but rather treated as holy, because God had set it apart as a place of atonement and mercy. Israel came to see that God is God, and will not be used as a lucky charm by superstitious people. There's another dramatic story of idolatry among the children of Israel revealed in Numbers chapter 21. In their wandering through the wilderness, the people of Israel were attacked by fiery serpents. It was a judgment from God. Moses, on the instruction of God, made a bronze serpent and set it upon a pole. Those who had been bitten looked at the bronze servant by faith, and they were healed. Not much is made of this story, as it's found in Numbers. But centuries later, we find the bronze servant making another brief appearance. This time in 2 Kings chapter 18, we find King Hezekiah breaking the serpent into pieces because the people had begun burning incense to it. What happened? What had been designed as a reminder of God's power prevailing over the poison of the serpents little by little had become a God itself. Well, we looked at what the command prohibits. The second thing we look at is what this command permits. Does this mean that all religious art is wrong? No. Because of this command, some people think that God has forbidden any kind of picture or any kind of image. And I don't think that's what it means. 
There have been many times that in an effort to rid the, the Christian community of any kind of idolatry, paintings and other artworks have been destroyed. It took place during the Reformation and it took place under the Puritans. Yet we have examples of the artistry in the worship of God, in the building of both the tabernacle and of the temple. In fact, later when God gives directions and specifications for the tabernacle, he specifically instructed that there were to be some beautiful diagrams and decorations involved in the temple. And you'll remember that over the Ark of the Covenant itself was a beautiful rendering of two cherubim leaning over with their golden wings touching each other. However, this, archi- this artistic rendering did not constitute an image of God, nor was it intended to may- be made to represent him. So God is not opposed to art. Art can be helpful in visualizing scenes from biblical times, but it must not be the focus of our worship. When God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, he chose to do so not in a visual way, but in an auditory way, in an audible word. This should tell us something about how he wants to be worshipped. He does not want us to look. He wants us to listen. And although I have never thought of it in this fashion, I think Philip Ryken makes a point when he says the, cru- the crucifix, the icon, the drama, and the dance, these things are not aids to worship, but make true worship all but impossible. Especially in a visual age such as ours, we need to be all the more careful not to look at an image, but listen to the word. Third, what does this command promise? Verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So, This command makes three promises. First of all, God is a jealous God. So what do we learn about the importance of how to correctly worship God? First of all, you've got to understand that God is a jealous God. Jealous or jealousy has a negative connotation in our world today. And it conveys the idea of envy. But the jealousy that's spoken of here does not involve being suspicious or wrongfully envious or mistrusting. Jealous, when he used to refer to God, refers to the quality of his character that demands exclusive devotion. The unwillingness to settle for being second place in anyone's life. Justifiably so. Secondly, God judges improper worship. Don't underestimate God's reaction. The second thing we learn about God 
is how he judges improper worship. Now, I'll grant you a lot of people have trouble with verse number five, where it says, I am a jealous God, and I punish the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Many don't like the picture that this verse gives us of God because he seems vindictive by keeping on punishing future generations. The emphasis of Scripture, however, is always personal responsibility. No matter what your parents or grandparents may have been, you won't answer for their sins. Ezekiel the prophet wrote in Ezekiel 18.20, The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. For good or bad, however, you will be affected by your father and your grandfather's life decisions. What I want us to understand that this is not a statement about God as much as it is about the statement about the consequences of false worship. You're teaching your children, and someday you will be teaching your grandchildren things that will either help them or damage them in their service of God. Let me give you a biblical example of what I think this means. In 2 Chronicles 26, we're introduced to King Uzziah. He was king, and he could do anything he wanted. But the Bible says that he could not go into the Holy of Holies. He was not a priest. That was reserved only for the high priest. But Uzziah said, I'm the king. I can go anywhere I want to. I can do anything I want to do. And so he went into the temple. And the Bible says that when God saw him break the law about the way that he was to be worshipped, leprosy began to spread on his face. It made the king so angry that he left the temple and he never went back. Well, what about Uzziah's son? His name was Jotham. We never read that Jotham ever worshipped God or ever went to the temple. Why? Well, the church had hurt his dad. Something happened to my daddy in church and I'm not going back down there. Throughout my ministry, I have met dozens of individuals who tried to worship God in their own way. They got angry with God and angry at the church, and they didn't go back. Isaiah's sin was visited upon his son, not by God, but by his son's own attitude. What about the third generation? Ahaz. Ahaz was not merely indifferent about the temple or the church like his father was. He became an actively wicked king who was opposed to everything that God stood for. He married foreign women and he brought in idols and worshipped them. Well, what about generation number four? Well, it says, it's sad But in 2 Chronicles 28, we read that Uzziah sacrificed his two baby boys 
to a pagan god. Well, that's how this verse comes true. So the question we ask ourselves today is what are we teaching our children and ultimately our grandchildren about worship? If there is bad or improper worship, then the consequences go down from generation to generation. The God we fashion with our minds is convenient, perhaps, but not very compelling. What else could explain how a person can stand and sing in the choir or stand and sing in the song service without missing a note, but at the same time be plotting their strategy for the work for the next day? How can one sit through a sermon looking rather attentive on the outside, but on the inside thinking that they're missing the first 15 minutes of the ball game? How can a family who to the world appears perfect hear the message but never apply the truth that they know? These people would say that they are worshiping. But what message are they conveying to their children and their grandchildren? Number three, God rewards proper worship. Don't forget or discount God's grace. You may have come by this point to say, come on, preacher, this is all getting pretty negative. Well, here's the positive side to that commandment. And we learn that God is a God who rewards proper worship. Look what he says in verse 6. But showing love to thousands of generations of those who keep my commands. God says, if you worship me properly, I will show you love. But if not just for two or three generations, but for generations after generation after generation, I'll continue to show my love to those who properly worship me. So what image do we have? First of all, Christ is the only perfect visible image that we have of a perfect invisible God. Galatians, uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Perhaps even more compelling to us is what image does the world see of the God whom I serve? The same one you see in the mirror every morning. He has made us to be his image in this world. Power-hungry leaders throughout the world have wanted their images displayed everywhere. It was true of Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Kim Jong-il and his son Kim Jong-un in North Korea. They want their images everywhere so that they will be worshipped. Yet the one true God is just the opposite. Because any depiction of him would limit his power and glory. In one of her books, Elizabeth Elliot says, The Christian life is a process of God breaking our idols one by one. So I want to close with just three questions that help us with a kind of 
idolatry inventory because it may help us to spot those things in our lives that we are holding on to too hard. Do I want this too much? Do I absolutely want this too much? Has this become too important to me? How would I feel if this were suddenly taken away from me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for constantly shaking our memories, helping us to understand more about you and the desire in which you desire to be worshipped. We know we're serving and worshipping the right God. Help us to worship in the right way. Help us never to allow things to take your place in our lives. Help us to never use substitutes for you or to think that we are able to make you in our image, but that you have made us in your image. Father, help us as we strive to live for you, as we strive to show this to a world who does not know you. Help us to be true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.